Well, uh, for the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about the church, and more specific than that, we've been talking about that church. Uh, that church that we want to be like, and that church that we say we don't want to be like. Because when we as the Creek Church understand the church that we want to be and also the church that we don't want to be, it really does help us get on the path to becoming the church that God wants us to be. And equally important, uh, the church that the times that we live in really compel us and require us to be in order to be the church as God intended the church uh, to be. So if you haven't been here, uh, we started this thing off a couple of weeks ago by talking about uh, maybe one of the most, if not the most important church in all of the New Testament, uh, the church that was located in Antioch. And we talked about that church because this was a church that had a move of God. And the reason that you can know they had a move of God is because every time a move of God happens, it moves the people of God in the direction of those people who are far from God. That, that's how you can see a move of God. A move of God always moves people in the direction of people far from God. That's what happened there. It was in Antioch that Gentiles first came into the church. The church started off Jewish, and then in Antioch, all of these Gentile people started coming into the church. And because Gentiles were now in the church with Jewish people that they had nothing in common with, there was a whole lot of diversity in the church. Uh, but at the church of Antioch, everybody was welcome. Everybody was invited in, no matter who you were, no matter the color of your skin, no matter what you had done, no matter the story of your past, no matter the story of your present, everybody was welcomed in. And so every time that I think about Antioch, and I hope that you will think of this as well in the future, whenever I think about those first Christians at Antioch, those first Jewish Christians at Antioch, I will forever remember that that particular group of people stepped in the direction of a group of people they had been taught all of their lives to walk away from. And when it comes to that type of church, count me in. When it comes to the Creek Church, I say I want to be like that church. I want to be a church where, hey, we've got our eyes on those who are far from God, that our hearts are broken because of those far from God, and that our doors are open wide no matter who you are, no matter what you, are, what you have done, you are welcome here. And it doesn't matter how different we all are, we can find common ground in the fact that we're all sinners and Jesus died so that we could be saved from our sin. And then we talked about last week, the church in Corinth. And the church in Corinth were passionate about the things of the Spirit. I mean, th this was a church that was really into all things spiritual. And so they were consumed with the idea of spirituality, but uh, unfortunately they were plagued with uh, immaturity. And their immaturity created incompatibility within the church. And so people just couldn't get along with each other. And he couldn't get along with him, and she couldn't get along with her, and they couldn't get along with them. And, and it was just all these factions and all these divisions, all because Paul said, you're a bunch of immature Christians in Antioch. You're, you're worldly. You think you're spiritual because you're talking about spiritual gifts and you're talking about the things of the Spirit, you know, and the mysteries of God. He said, but really and truthfully, you are immature in your faith because of how you're living. Your immorality says that you're immature. Your immorality points to worldliness and the way that you treat each other points to immaturity and worldliness. And so Paul, he taught the church at Corinth, or at least he tried to, that true spirituality and true maturity is revealed in how we live and how we treat each other. Because the more our faith grows, the more our love for each other will show. And so we talked about their immaturity and we talked about all that bickering and fussing and fighting and all that silliness. And we said, you know what? When it comes to that, we don't want to be like that church. 
And so today I want to talk to you about a new church, a third church, and not the church in Antioch and not the church in Corinth. And in order to do so, I want you to flex your imagination for just a minute, all right? I want you to imagine 1,900 years ago. Um, I want you to imagine somewhere around the year AD 50. This would have been about 20 years after Jesus had died, been buried, resurrected from the dead, ascended back into heaven. Uh, this would have been about 20 years after the start of the church. AD 50 would have been about two or three years after Gentiles started flooding into the church of Antioch. And so around 50 AD, there was a pastor who walked in front of his church and he had something in his hand. It looked like a letter and it turned out to be a letter, but he walked in front of his church and he told them what he had in his hand and he told them who it was from. And a letter written in the first century, that was a significant thing because there wasn't a lot of things written down. And so anytime something was written down, it had value. And when they heard who the letter was from, because he's talking to his church and his church made up the first generations of Christians in all of history. His church were part of the first generation of Christians. And so he looks at them, he says, I've got a letter to read. The letter's addressed to you and the letter's addressed to me. And here's who the letter's from. And when everybody heard who the letter was from, everybody leaned in. And perhaps he unrolled the scroll or he opened up the parchment and he read these words, a letter to him and his church. Grace be to all of you. We remember before God, our Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love and your Endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus. For we know, brothers and sisters, who are loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel, it came to you, not with just words, but with also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. For you know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And then you became models to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia, but also in regions further out. And your faith has become known everywhere. Therefore, we don't need to say anything about you, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave to us. They tell of how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he has raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. That letter was written by the apostle Paul. Now, if you don't know who Paul is, Paul is a Jesus hater that became a Jesus follower. And if you're here and you've not made up your mind about Jesus, or you thought you made up your mind about Jesus, but you saw a YouTube video, or you read a book, or someone at school said something to you about Jesus, and now you're not so sure about Jesus, you should consider learning more about Paul, Saul of Tarsus, as a reason to believe that Jesus is who he claims to be, because Jesus was hated by Paul until... Paul met Jesus after he was dead and resurrected from the grave. And so Paul becomes a great reason for us to consider putting our faith in Jesus. But, but this particular letter was written by Paul. And that was just a portion. That was just the introduction of a letter that Paul wrote somewhere around AD 50. Most scholars believe it's the earliest letter that Paul wrote. And we have it preserved in the New Testament. Paul wrote that letter to a group of Christians in the capital of Macedonia. 
in the area that we know as Greece. And in the capital of Macedonia, there was a city, a large city, influential city, a center of commerce and trade. It was the city of Thessalonica. And the Apostle Paul had traveled there alongside of Silas and Timothy somewhere around three years after he was sent out from the church of Antioch, after Gentiles started flooding into the church. Paul and his entourage on his second missionary journey came to the capital of Macedonia, a city known as Thessalonica. And as Paul's, you know, his habit was, uh, the way that he liked to do ministry, when he came into Thessalonica, because there was a, a pretty large population of Jewish people there, he came into the city, and the first place that he went was the local synagogue, where the Jewish people met to worship and study the scriptures. And so for three consecutive weeks, you can read all about this, it's, it's, it's entirely interesting and worth your time, Acts chapter 17. Paul came into town and for three straight weeks, he opened up the Old Testament because that's what he, as a Jewish man, shared in common with those people who subscribed to the Jewish faith. He opened up the Old Testament and he said, the law and the prophets promised a Messiah. The law and the prophets promised a savior. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that Old Testament promise. And so he would open up the scriptures and he would build a case an Old Testament case for the New Testament Jesus. He opened up the law of Moses and he opened up the books of the prophet and he pointed out promises and he pointed out narratives which pointed to the arrival of Jesus. And then he told them the story of Jesus and said, Jesus is the fulfillment of this Old Testament prophecy. All of the Old Testament has been pointing to one person and his name is Jesus. And so he did this for three weeks. He did this. He reasoned with them. He had a conversation with them. He, he persuaded many of them to become followers of Jesus. And when many of them decided to become followers of Jesus, there were many others who were really upset that many of them had become followers of Jesus. And so the others that didn't become followers of Jesus that were now ticked off that these people became followers of Jesus, they went out and they organized a mob and they organized a riot and they drugged some of those brand new Christians. I mean, we're talking, this church has just got started. This church has just been planted. And they arrested some of those Christians and they dragged them before the city council. It was dramatic, it was tragic, it was horrible. And from the very beginning, this church in the city of Thessalonica was encountering persecution. All of a sudden, from the very beginning, in this particular city, it was not convenient to be a follower of Jesus. And so there were riots, there were Christians arrested. Later on that evening, after one of the major riots, when the sun went down, the Christian leaders looked at Paul and said, you gotta get out of town. You gotta get out of town. We're sending you on to the next town. Just go do what you do. Go start more churches. Get out of town. It's not safe for you. And so Paul left. He left way before he wanted to leave. And so he went on to the next town and then to the next town and then to the next town. Well, as you would be, if you were Paul, you would wonder, how's it going for my new friends, for these new Christians, this new church in Thessalonica? And so he began to ask questions and he began to ask around and people were talking. And so he sent one of his companions, one of his associates, sent him back to Thessalonica to kind of check on the church, to see how things were going. Kind of like he did with Corinth. Go back, find out how things are going, if it's good, bad, or ugly. So I kind of know how to respond. And so he sent one of his associates back to Thessalonica his associate comes back, brings a report, and then Paul says, okay, I gotta write a letter. And he picked up his pen, or he dictated it, we're not sure, he could have done either one. And he began to write this letter to this first generation of Christians. People no different than you and me. People who came to faith in Jesus, 
They were told the gospel. They were told the narrative that Jesus died for their sins, that he was buried, that he was raised from the dead. They were taught the teachings of Jesus. This is what Jesus taught his followers. And this is now what we're teaching you, that you are now a follower of Jesus. And so they knew many of the same things that you know. And this is what Paul says back to them in the letter. He says, we remember before our God and Father, your work produced by faith. Everybody say faith. Your labor prompted by love. Everybody say love. love. And your endurance inspired by hope. Everybody say hope. hope. He says, you know, I've been thinking about you. And now that I've gotten a report about how things are going and I'm hearing people talk, you know, the chatter on the street, I'm telling you, when I think about you, I can't help but think about your faith, your love, and your hope. I can't help but think about your work that you're doing, the labor that you're involved in, and the fact that you're so strong, you're so enduring of difficult situations. And so Paul, he compliments them. He celebrates some things about their Christian experience. He celebrates, first of all, their work of faith. He says, when I think of you, when I think of that particular church that you all are a part of, I think about your work of faith. And, and here's what Paul is trying to say to them. When I think of you as a bunch of Christians in Thessalonica, I think of the fact that you are a group of Christians who are engaged. You're not disengaged. You're engaged in the mission of the church. We told you that Jesus said that you're to go into all the world and make disciples. You're engaged in that mission. You understand that at home, at work, in the marketplace, in the street, at the local gathering on the first day of the week when you get together with other Christians, when you go on a business trip, when you're involved in the local sports program, when you go to school, when you go here, when you go there, you are engaged in the mission of the church. You understand that everywhere you go, your number one priority is to see people far from God take a step in the direction of Jesus. And he says, you're engaged in that. You are working, you are busy. You're not sitting on the sidelines. You're not claiming to be a part of the church without doing your part. You are engaged. You're not spectating. You're not content with that. You're just not sitting in a chair and occupying space. No, you're not content with that. You are participating. You are engaged. You are sharing your gifts with the church. You are using your influence to reach people far from God. You are involved in the mission. He says, you're working. You're busy. And that's how the church should be. The church should be busy. Faith works. And that's the type of New Testament faith we're introduced to, not only by Paul in this particular letter, but all throughout the New Testament, we are introduced to a faith that if it is genuine faith, it works. We're not saved, as one pastor would say, by faith and works, but we're saved because we have a faith that works. It was Jesus who would say, you will know a tree by their what? by their fruit. So if you just look at a tree long enough, sooner or later, if it's living, it's gonna produce fruit. And whatever type of fruit that it produces, you're gonna know what type of tree that it is. And that's the, way, that's the way faith works. And that's the way the New Testament presents to us faith. And that's how we should understand faith. Not only your faith, but other people's faith. And so faith always produces fruit. Uh, James, the half-brother of Jesus, he said, listen, if you claim to have faith, but you don't have works to go along with it, mm, you don't have faith. In the New Testament, you know, the idea of faith, it's always doing something. It's always involved. It's always engaged. He said, if you claim to have faith, you know, you claim to have faith, but you don't have works, it is dead. Because wherever there's living faith, there will also be a working faith. 
Now, for those of you who grew up in the type of church that I grew up in, people were always talking about profession of faith, profession of faith, profession of faith. How many of you ever heard that term? Profession of faith. Did they make a profession of faith? Did they make, did you make a profession of faith? Did they make, hey, I heard they're sick. Did they make a profession of faith? Hey, I, did they go to church? Did they ever made a profession of faith? Christians love, some Christians love to talk about a profession of faith as though a profession of faith is magical, as though a profession of faith is where we ought to hang all of our hopes on. But the New Testament, not only does it talk about a profession of faith, but the New Testament, it could be good news or it could be bad news, depending on how you feel about it. The, the New Testament talks about equally, and maybe even a bit more, a practice of faith. That's a question you don't really hear a lot of Christians ask. Some Christians say, well, do they have a profession of faith? Or maybe the question ought to be, do they have a practice of faith? And if they're practicing faith, what, what does that faith look like? What is that faith supposed to look like? Uh, I think when it comes to faith, what Paul is commending, they never went off duty. Their faith was always on call. Uh, we were sitting at home the other night. It was probably about 11, 15, and, and the phone rang. Allison was not on call that night, but the phone rang, and I answered the phone because she was in the other room, and someone was on the other line, and I could tell it was serious. And, and so I said, hold on one minute, gave the phone to Allison, and Allison in pajamas and tennis shoes, she's out the door. The next thing she knows, she's going in. Because as a doctor, she may not be on call, but there's a point that she's always on call. As Christians, you never, I never get to disengage from my calling. I never get to disengage from my faith. I never get to take a day off. I, I don't put away my faith when I go to the office. I don't put away my faith when I go to school. I don't put away my faith when I get on the court. I don't put away my faith when I'm doing business. My faith puts me on duty all the time. And because of what Christians believe about Jesus, and because of what we believe about the world, and because of what we believe about sin, that type of faith begins to change how we live. It's just the nature of faith. Uh, now, Christians, we love to feel something. We're not equally interested sometimes in doing something. We want to come to church and feel something because we think that faith is feeling something. I, I want to feel something. Can you make me feel something, Pastor? Hey, music people, make me feel something. Sing my favorite song so I can feel something. I I'm going to leave and I don't want to leave not feeling something. And then you leave and you didn't feel anything. It's like, oh, I didn't feel anything. It wasn't any good. My church stinks. You know, I I'm so, you know, that's not New Testament faith. New Testament faith is not feeling something. Although, I am totally in favor of feeling something. But New Testament faith is not feeling something. New Testament faith is actually doing something about your beliefs. That you believe in such a way, it changes the way that you behave in life. We talked about faith quite extensively a couple weeks ago, and I didn't want to stay too long here because you can go back to the last message of the Future Faith series, and we talked about faith quite a bit. But, but here's something you need to think about when it comes to faith. Faith, New Testament faith, faith that he's commending them for. Faith is trusting the heart of God so much. You are now willing to obey the words of God. This is what he's talking about. That you begin to trust and I begin to trust the heart of God so much that I am now willing, as inconvenient as it may be, as uncomfortable as it may be, I may have to do it kicking and screaming, but I am now willing to obey the words of God because I trust his heart. I trust that he has my best interest in mind. I trust that what he says is good is best for me. And so what New Testament faith does, it seeks alignment with my life based on God's vision 
for my life. And I try to bring my life, I try to bring my desires, I try to bring my actions, I try to bring my words, I try to bring everything about my life in alignment with what God has said his vision for my life is. And that's what he's commending. And so as Christians, when we get this right, there's no part of our life where we disengage from our faith. We are engaged in faith all the time. We're not only engaged on the local church level, but we are engaged when we leave our local church. All throughout the week, we're always engaged as it relates to our faith. And then he celebrates the fact that they had a labor of love. He said, listen, everything you're doing, you're inspired by love. You're, you are motivated by the right thing. Your motives are right. Jesus talked a lot about this. He said, you can do, you can do good things, but for very bad reasons. And when you do good things for bad reasons, or you do right things for wrong reasons, God doesn't celebrate that. God doesn't applaud that. And I'm afraid that many of us, we grew up in a Christianity, we grew up in a version of faith that just said, hey, do the right thing, do the right thing, do the right thing, do this, you're supposed to do this, you're not supposed to do that, do this, you're not supposed to do that. And then we just ended up doing it because we felt like we had to. We ended up doing it because we just felt like, hey, I, I want to keep God on my good side. I don't want God to give my kid cancer. I don't want God to cause me to wreck my car and take me out at 45. I, I, I just want to make sure God is on my good side. And then all of a sudden, we end up trying to what we think is living out our Christian faith, and it's not motivated by love at all. Paul said, when you're doing what you should do because of why you should do it, that's when God celebrates it. When you're doing the right thing for the right reason, that's what causes God to lean in. You can pray. That's a good thing. But if you pray for the wrong reason, Jesus said, mm, no reward for that. You can give, but if you give for the wrong reason, mm, no reward for that. You can fast, but if you don't fast for the right reason, no reward for that. And he celebrates the fact that what they were doing, it was inspired, motivated, because they loved God and they loved other people. In chapter 4, you can read about it. He talks, he says, listen, I don't have to write to you people, you people about, you know, loving each other because you're taught by God himself. Taught by God himself to love one another. So here's what I want to say to you, Paul would say in chapter 4. Just do it more and more. Just love each other more and more. Just keep on what you're doing as far as love is concerned more and more. Why would he say to them, I don't have to write to you about this because you know that God himself teaches you? Because they knew enough. They didn't know everything. But they knew enough. They didn't even have a copy of the Old Testament, most of them. They would have to go to the, the local synagogue to hear the Old Testament. They certainly didn't have the New Testament. It's not even been written yet. So they've got enough, he says, to do what they're supposed to do. And they don't even have as much as what we've got. So they have less than what we've got. But he says, you've got all you need in order to love each other because you are taught by God himself to love one another. In other words, if you're ever unclear... If you're never, you know, not certain about how to love each other, just fix your eyes on what Jesus did. If that's all you know, that's all you need to know. That Jesus died for you. Jesus served you rather than serving himself. He preferred you over himself. He forgave you. Even though you were guilty, even though you didn't deserve it, he extended you grace, he extended you mercy, he extended you love. So, hey, that's all you need to know in order to get it right with everybody else. He says, so you got a labor of love. It's incredible. It's awesome. And then he says, let's talk about your endurance of hope. These people, they started a church and all of a sudden persecution broke out. It wasn't easy to be a Christian. It wasn't convenient to be a Christian, but they didn't quit. They stayed in. They didn't check out. They didn't walk away. And no matter how tough it got, no matter how painful it was to follow Jesus, no matter how much disappointment was attached with following Jesus, 
They refused to quit. They stayed in the game. They didn't say, hey, check, I'm checking out. I'm walking off. I'm quit. I go home. They didn't do any of that because they had hope. They really did believe the best was yet to come. And they really did believe that if they stayed with it and they kept on sowing, that God would keep on watering. And sooner or later, they would reap if they would not think. They would reap if they, you know, refused to quit. And so he says, listen, when I think about you all, that's what I think about. I think about a work of faith. I think about a labor of love. I think about the fact that you just refuse to quit. And so here's what we learn about it. Based on what Paul said, they were energized by faith, motivated by love, and inspired by hope. Sounds pretty good to me. I'd say I'd want to be like that church. I, I hope it can be said of me. I hope it can be said of you that you're energized by faith, that you're motivated by love, that you're inspired by hope, that you're engaged in your local church. You're doing the things that engaged people do. You're serving. You're involved. You're giving. You're inviting. You're doing the things that, you know, engaged Christians do. When you go to the office, you're conscious of your influence. When you go out there in the marketplace, you're conscious of the fact that you're a Christian and you're called to reach people who are far from God. You're, you're energized by your faith. You wake up every day feeling significant. You wake up every day feeling significant because the purpose of your life is significant. And every day, because you love God and because you love Jesus and because you love people, you're going to get after it and you're going to do the hard things. And you're going to do it sometimes even if you don't want to because you love something more important than you. And you're so hopeful. You refuse to quit. You just endure. Things and people and circumstances and situations, you just, you just don't give up. You don't give in. And so Paul, he just takes a moment and says, well done. And he goes on, he says, for we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words but also with power. You know what we've always said from day one around here at the Creek Church? We don't want a dead church. We don't want a dead church. We don't want a dry church. We want a church that is alive. We want a church where God is active. We want a church where God is moving in a powerful way, speaking to hearts in a powerful way, changing minds in a powerful way, altering behavior in a powerful way. And he says, that's how it happened for you. He said, God showed up and it, it wasn't dead. It wasn't dry. It was it was dynamic. It was powerful. And he says, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction, you know how we lived among you for your sake. He said, listen, your church had an incredible beginning. And you, you Christians became imitators of us and of the Lord. And this was, I think this is pretty, pretty, pretty much a big deal. Paul says, you know, you don't, have, you don't have a Bible. You don't have chapter and verse. But what you did have was me. And what you did have was Silas. And what you did have was Timothy. And so in the absence of having a book to hold on to, you just locked on to us. And you decided to live your life the way that we were living our lives. Now imagine if everybody lived according to your expression of faith. Or my expression of faith. <laughs> what would things look like? I mean, obviously, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they were getting some things right. Because, hey, you imitated us and you imitated the Lord. How, how did they do that, Paul? And he goes on, he says, For you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. He says, listen, the church, when it started, they arrested some people. They drugged them before the city council. It was bad. It was ugly. It was tragic. But... You learned some things from us about how to handle adversity. You learned some things about us about how to handle pain and disappointment. Now, it's a great story. I don't have time to tell you the whole thing. But 
Acts chapter 17 records the birth of this church, the beginning of this church, the genesis of this church. But what's profound is what comes before Acts 17. You know what comes before Acts 17? Acts 16, right? It's deep. It's deep, but it's true. What happens in Acts chapter 16 is Paul goes to a place called Philippi. And there in Philippi, him and Silas are arrested because of their faith. They're beaten and they're bruised and they're bloody and they're locked up in prison. And you know, this story that you know, we've heard, it's been, you know, just, we've just heard this all of our lives. And at midnight, as they sat there in the jail cell, beaten, bloodied and bruised and hurting, at midnight, they lifted up their voice and they praised God. And then God opened up the jail cell, set them free. And they're still walking away, bruised, beaten, and bloodied. God set them free, but they're bruised, beaten, and bloodied. They're walking away in pain from a great miraculous event. They walked away in pain even though God created a miracle. And they did not use their pain as an excuse to quit. Matter of fact, they went limping probably, and they walked hurting probably onto the next town. And you know what the next town was? Thessalonica. And Paul and Timothy started perhaps one of the greatest churches of the first century while they were in pain. And I think the reminder is this, that for some of us, we may do our greatest work for God in pain. We may do some of our best work for God limping away from what just happened to us. He could have checked out. He could have said, who needs this? <laughs> he could have said, I'll go back to Antioch. They love me there. But even when he was hurting, he kept doing what he was supposed to do. And he said, you know what? You've done the same thing. You've done the same thing. And Paul would, he, he would talk about this stuff all the time. He would talk about his thorn in the flesh. He would talk about the pain that he was never able to get rid of, the pain that he was never able to escape. And he said three times he asked God to take the pain away, three times he asked God to take the thorn away, but God wouldn't. And so what did Paul decide to do? He would decide to see his thorn differently. He would decide to see his pain differently. And he saw his pain as a weakness that made perfect the strength of God in his life. He saw his weakness as an invitation to the presence and the power of God in his life. And he said, you know what? You learned this from us and now you're doing the same thing. And you became a model. You became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. And the Lord's message has rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Isn't that incredible? He says, I can't go anywhere without people talking about you. He says, you become known everywhere, and therefore we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves, other people, report the kind of reception you gave us. They tell us how you turned to God from idols. You turned away from the empty things to the thing that was full of meaning. You turned away from the worthless to the thing that was worthwhile. You turned away from the idols. You turned to God to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he has raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. And, and Paul just continues to applaud them. I mean, I mean, you don't find Paul talking about this, this type of Christianity for this long of a period of time in his letters. I, I don't think anywhere. He commends believers, but I mean, this is the longest like set of commendations that perhaps you'll find in any of Paul's writings. And he just, he applauds them. And he says, job well done, job well done, job well done. Here's what I think we learned about this church. They trusted God. 
they loved people and they refused to stop doing either. That's what Paul, over and over again, that's what he's commending. You trusted God enough to turn to him from idols. You trusted God enough to receive what we were saying. You trusted God in order to not quit in the midst of your pain. You trusted God enough, you've loved people and, and you've refused to quit doing either. And so as a part of this church, because I'm just not a pastor, I'm a part. And as a part of this church, you know what I say? Boy, I wanna be like that church. I wanna be a church that trusts God and loves people and refuses to quit doing either. And that's how Paul begins his letter. But it's not how Paul ends his letter. Paul ends his letter with advice. Paul ends his letter with with great imperatives of this is what you need to keep doing. If you wanna stay great, if you wanna keep being a church that makes a difference, if you wanna be a church that turns the world upside down, if you wanna be a church whose the words of God, the words of Jesus keep ringing out there beyond your city, into the next city and beyond the region into the next region, if you wanna be this church that really makes a difference, he says, let me tell you what you need to do. And then he gets to the very end. This is where we end it. He said, this is what you've gotta do. He says, I want you to Rejoice always. If I could give you any kind of pastoral advice from here on out, and if you all would just lean in, I've told you how you're doing a good job. I've told you about your faith. I've told you about your love. I've told you about your hope. How you've been waiting for Jesus to come back. Listen, let me tell you about from this point forward, let me tell you what, what you need to do. Rejoice always. In other words, refuse to be controlled by your circumstances. Don't be a Christian who's controlled by their circumstances. Don't choose bitterness. Don't choose discouragement. Choose joy. And this is where there is a major Christian misunderstanding. We want to feel joy. Joy is not a feeling. Joy is a decision. Joy is a reality. Joy is a confidence. Joy is something Jesus said, I have given my joy to you. And we have no record of him taking it away. He said, I have given joy to you. And in the worst of times, in the darkest of days, you may not feel joy, but you will absolutely have to choose joy. You will have to be confident. You will have to be confident that God is in control of whatever circumstance you're in. And the absence of you being able to control your circumstance, you need to surrender to the God who controls your circumstance. You rejoice evermore. You rejoice when you believe that God is with you and God is for you. That his plan, though it may not be your plan and though you hate his plan, it is better than your plan. That God is good even when things are bad. Rejoice, rejoice. And Paul would say the same thing to you and say, say the same thing to me, that no matter what you're going through and no matter what they said and no matter what they did and no matter who disappointed you, and no matter the prayer that didn't get answered, and no matter how disappointed you may be in God, and no matter how disappointed you may be in how it all turned out, to choose joy, to believe that God really is on your side, that God can take all the bad and he can actually turn it for good because he himself is good. And even when life is bad, God continues to be good all the time. Rejoice always. And then he says, pray continually. If I could just tell you how to go out, if I could just tell you what to do from here on out, 
pray continually. He doesn't mean just walking around, you know, Lord Jesus. He doesn't mean that. I think what he's talking about is a constant awareness of God. And really the word means to lay hold of God. To lay hold of God every day. To lay hold of God consistently every day in every corner, in every aspect of your life. It is a posture that says, God, I need you. Or as the psalmist would say, God, I feel like I'm walking through a desert. And I feel like I'm thirsty. And I feel like I can't find water. And I keep believing that water is just over the hill. And I believe that water's just over that ridge. And water's just beyond the next turn. And so I just keep walking. Because I believe that a drink of water is out there. And the psalmist said, that's how we chase after him. As a man, as a woman, we are dry and thirsty in a desert and barren land. I think that's what Paul's talking about. That if you feel far from God, the best thing you can do is chase after Him. The best thing you can do is to walk after Him. Because here's the thing, God reminded me this morning. If you'll chase me, if you'll pursue me, I've already told you I'm pursuing you. And as I'm pursuing you, if you start pursuing me, We can't help but bump into each other. So pray and don't stop. Keep seeking. Keep chasing. Draw close. Give thanks in all circumstances. Give thanks in all circumstances. Gratitude won't change the circumstances, but it'll change the way you experience them. Do you have a gratitude list? Do you have a Thanksgiving list? I keep one. Here's my latest one. I'm thankful for Jesus. Are you really, am I really grateful for Jesus? I'm grateful for his grace. I'm grateful that I don't have to be defined by my worst moments. Aren't you? I'm grateful that I don't have to be defined by my failure grateful because of Jesus I don't have to live empty and no matter how far I've ever wondered no matter how far I may wonder in the future he always waits for me and he always welcomes me back I'm grateful for that I can be grateful for that right in the midst of the darkest night I can be grateful for that and it will be true even when God seems so very far away Even when it doesn't feel true, I can be grateful that it is true. I'm grateful for the cross. That it reminds me how God feels about me. I'm grateful for his love, that nothing can separate me from it. I'm grateful for his spirit that works in me, works on me. It's working through me. I'm thankful for his presence. I'm thankful for his word. I'm thankful for my family. I'm thankful for my wife. I think I've got the best one in all the world. She's smarter than I am. She's better than I am. Thankful for my kids. Shepherd and Grayson have taught me more about God's heart for me than anything in all the world. And I am grateful for them. I'm I'm grateful. I'm thankful. I'm thankful for my church. Thankful for you. Thankful for the friends that I have in my life that make life better thankful for people who believed in me when there was no reason to believe in me. I've got the the gentleman who invited me 
to preach the very first time I got invited to preach to a church. That pastor's here this morning, Pastor Tim H. Mills. And I don't know where I would be today. I, I think certainly I may not be here today if it wasn't for him picking up a phone and saying, I know you don't know how to preach. And I know you're trying to be everybody who's on TV, but come preach at my church. I'm thankful for that. Do you have, you have things you're thankful for? Paul says if you want to stay great, if you want to be a great church, that's what you got to do because for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. This was a church trusted God no matter what. This was a church that loved people no matter what. And this was a church that decided they were never going to quit doing either of those things. How do you want to be known? How do we want to be known? One day they'll have a funeral and they'll eulogize us. How do you want to be known? Wouldn't it be good for them before they talked about anything else to talk about your faith? Boy, that you had a work of faith. You were involved. You were engaged. That you labored out of love for your heavenly father and for other people. That boy, you stuck through it even though it was tough because you believed one day it's all going to be okay. That's what I hope they can say about me. I've gotten to a place they may not say a great preacher. They may not say a great pastor. They may not say a great leader. But I think what's most important are the things that would make God say, well done, good and faithful subject. Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful son. Your faith, your love, and your hope. And wouldn't it be something one day to have Jesus himself maybe just stand up on the edge of his seat? standing to our feet with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. How do you want to be known? By your faith, by your love, by your hope. And are you? Is that what your life looks like right now? And if you're a Jesus follower and there's some areas of your life out of alignment, if you're a Jesus follower and there's some things going on in your life that it's compromising your faith, it's undermining your love and it's depleting your hope, Maybe today is the day you just need to rededicate your life back to the things that truly matter. Faith, love, and hope. Maybe you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus to be Lord and Savior of your life. You can do that today. Whosoever calls upon his name shall be saved and you can invite him in. Received his gift of grace by faith. If you're here and you're in a dark night, if you're here in a painful season, in just a moment at all of our campuses, we're gonna sing together. And if you want someone to pray with you, if you want someone to pray over you, our campus pastors will be down front. Some of our pastors will be down front here. I want to give you an opportunity to feel the freedom to step out and find a place to pray. Heavenly Father, may one day they talk about our faith, our hope, our love, a church that trusted you, Christians that trusted you no matter what. 
and loved each other no matter what and that we refused to quit doing either of those things. Help us to take these words and live them out. In Jesus' name.